Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. You're listening to The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. Welcome back to what is the very first episode of season four. Over the next three months, our in-depth interviews will be focusing on climate change and what it means for international politics and our daily lives. Stay tuned for those episodes, but for now, it's time to whiz around the world and recap the last few weeks. Yeah, we've definitely got a lot to cover. Let's get into it. Our first story takes place in Israel, where we've seen some of the worst conflict between Israelis and Palestinians in years. In just the last few days, Israel has carried out major airstrikes in Palestinian territory, while Palestinian fighters in Gaza have launched literally thousands of rockets into Israel. In Gaza, which is home to many Palestinians, roughly 10,000 people have fled their homes. And tragically, at the time that I'm recording this, more than 145 Palestinians, including 40 children, have been killed. And to give you a sense of the disparity in death toll, 10 Israelis have died so far. Israel has also assassinated senior Palestinian officials and carried out targeted attacks on roads that lead to hospitals. It's even bombed the offices of news outlets in Palestine. And you might have seen footage of journalists talking with Israeli officials over the phone, trying to convince them not to strike the headquarters of AP News and Al Jazeera. The Israeli official that you heard there on the other end of the phone refused to listen, and the tower was ultimately destroyed. On top of the military conflict, major riots have broken out between Israeli and Palestinian civilians. We've seen synagogues, schools and apartments set on fire, shops have been looted and hotels have been ransacked. There's even been some chilling footage of people being dragged out of their cars and beaten by mobs. Yeah, the stories that are emerging are truly horrific, and we haven't seen violence like this in years, so what triggered it now? Yeah, it's the product of both long-term and short-term causes, I think. In terms of the long-term causes, the violence really has its roots in decades of conflict between Israel and Palestine about who should control certain areas of land. You see, Palestinians have predominantly lived in two areas, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. However, Israel claims that these areas belong to the Jewish people, and it's been ramping up efforts to take control over them. In the West Bank, the Israeli government has evicted Palestinians from their homes, while in Gaza, Israel has blockaded the area and prevented crucial supplies from reaching Palestinian residents. And that's led to deep, deep discontent among Palestinians. So. Why has that discontent broken out into violence now? Well, 
Tensions have been particularly high of late, and that's because the Israeli government has been scaling up its eviction of Palestinians from East Jerusalem. That's in turn led Palestinians to engage in multiple protests. Back on the street, bottles, rocks and other objects are thrown by protesters. Police use stun grenades and make arrests for public disorder offences. In response to these protests, the Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is one of Islam's holiest sites. And to make matters worse, they did it on the last Friday of Ramadan, one of the most significant nights in the Palestinian and Islamic calendar. Well, there have also been explosions of stun grenades and tear gas inside Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's understood that people were staging a sit-in protest and security forces attempted to clear them. Hamas, a militant Palestinian group, issued an ultimatum demanding that Israeli troops withdraw from the mosque. And when they didn't, Hamas then launched rockets into Israel. Israel countered with airstrikes and it all quickly spiralled into the shocking violence that we're currently seeing. And where does each side stand at the moment? Well, sadly, the conflict has only escalated over the weekend with some really, really distressing results. In an earlier Israeli attack, Mohammed al-Hadidi lost his wife and four young sons. His baby son, Omar, who's just five months old, was the only survivor. Despite tragic stories like that one, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said that the airstrikes will continue. Israel has responded forcefully to these attacks and we will continue to respond forcefully. Despite all of this, Egypt, Qatar and the UN are currently trying to negotiate a truce and President Biden has also spoken to Israeli and Palestinian leaders. And given everything that we've seen in the last week, we can only hope that those efforts will be successful. The biggest fuel pipeline system in the United States remains crippled by a cyber attack that's been called the worst of its kind in the US. Well, this is going to sound like something out of a James Bond film, but recently the US was hit by what experts are calling the biggest single publicly known cyber attack in its history. And instead of coming from a state actor, the attack was actually launched by a gang of cyber criminals. You see, Josh, on the 7th of May, a major US company known as Colonial Pipeline was brought down in one single cyber attack. And this is a big deal for two reasons. Firstly, looking at the short-term impact, Colonial is responsible for transporting 45% of the East Coast fuel supply. That's 2.5 million barrels of oil a day, which is used to power cars, trucks, planes, and a range of other vehicles and machines. But secondly, thinking in the longer term, this attack is also emblematic of a new era of cybersecurity threats where critical public infrastructure, such as oil pipelines, can become the target of severe cyber attacks at a moment's notice. So I think you could argue that in a certain sense, the Pandora's box has just been opened on this one. Yeah, that's huge news. But how did they even bring down such an important piece of infrastructure? Yeah, so in this case, the hackers deployed what's known as a ransomware attack. And essentially, a ransomware attack involves gaining access to an entity's digital systems and downloading as much sensitive data as possible. Now, once the hacker has access to this information, they'll then encrypt the data so that the entity can't access it anymore. So that means that the data's owners are essentially locked out. 
Then the hacker will notify the entity of the breach and they'll demand a large ransom that often totals millions of dollars. And if the entity doesn't pay the ransom by a certain deadline, the hackers will either delete the data or share it publicly. Yeah, I feel like you hear about ransomware attacks every couple of months in the news. But in this particular instance, what have the consequences been for those living on the US East Coast? Yeah, the impact's been pretty severe. States of emergency declared in Georgia, Florida, Virginia, and North Carolina as pressure at the pump spreads up and down the East Coast. We have sold 4,000 plus gallons within three hours. We're already out of unleaded regular. We are still feeling that pain. With four major oil pipelines shut down, the US federal government actually had to enact emergency legislation allowing for trucks to transport fuel along public roadways. And over the weekend, at my direction, the Department of Transportation issued an emergency order to loosen restrictions on truck drivers in order to allow more fuel to be transported by a tanker. But obviously, there's never going to be enough trucks on the road to replace critical oil pipelines. And so as a result, there's been some major fuel shortages up and down the East Coast. A lot of people have been struggling to get access to fuel. And when they do, they find that prices have shot up as a result of the supply slump. Tonight, the lines for gas getting longer, from the Carolinas down to Florida. Panic drivers overwhelming gas stations. Prices have even increased outside of the U.S. as international oil refineries move in to fill supply gaps. And Josh, you may have even seen footage of fistfights at U.S. gas stations as desperate drivers compete to fill up. It's been pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, it is. And I shouldn't joke about it, but we thought we had problems when people started panic buying toilet paper. (laughs) Over there, it looks far more extreme. So who's to blame? The attack's actually been attributed to a Russian criminal gang known as Darkseid. And Darkseid is a cyber gang. It's known for its ransomware and extortion attacks. And it's infamous for its professionalism and its unique targeting approach. Darkseid maintains a publicly facing website on the dark web where it actually issues press releases to be used and seen by international media organizations. It even has an ethics page where it explains the type of organizations that it refuses to target. And those include schools, hospitals, universities, and not-for-profits. Ethical hackers. (laughs) That's right. It is a real thing. Um, And of course, they are based in Russia, but they actually don't appear to be backed by the Russian government. Although the fact that Darkseid exclusively targets Western nations mean that Moscow appears to have left it alone, knowing that it's creating a nuisance for its geopolitical rivals. Uh, In this case, Darkseid actually put out another glossy press statement that somewhat apologized for the attack and seemingly blamed colonial pipelines for not coughing up the money. Here is what this hacking group is now saying. Our goal is to make money and not creating a problem for society. From today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. But the scale, professionalism and audacity of groups such as Darkseid, coupled with the unprecedented impact of May's attack, just goes to show that all of us really need to be paying attention to the cybersecurity domain particularly our own personal cyber hygiene. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the games of the 32nd Olympiad are awarded to the city of Tokyo. (laughs) 
that was the moment when, all the way back in 2013, the International Olympic Committee announced that Tokyo had won the rights to host the 2020 Olympic Games. And at the time, Tokyo was really seen as a safe bet, a wealthy city capable of putting on a successful, problem-free Olympics. But as we all know, that clearly hasn't happened. Because of the pandemic, the Games were postponed to this year. And now, with just 66 days until the opening ceremony, pressure is mounting for the Games to be cancelled altogether. And that's because Japan is currently facing one of its worst spikes in coronavirus cases. I feel like we've heard so much about the situation in India that Japan has slipped off the radar a bit. So what's been going on there? Well, Japan is currently in the midst of its fourth wave of infections. Daily case counts are the highest they've been since March, and part of that is due to a highly infectious new strain that's emerged. And as a result, just last week, the Tokyo city government extended its state of emergency, and it also introduced tougher lockdown measures. Tokyo's state of emergency will now remain in place until the end of May, and there'll be new restrictions in several other regions. The country's also beginning to face hospital bed shortages in some regions, which is never a good sign. And what makes the situation even more concerning is that only about 2% of Japan's population has been vaccinated. So pretty much the entire population is vulnerable to COVID-19. And yet the country is about to be swamped by roughly 15,000 athletes from all the way around the world. Yeah, that's actually a really intense situation and one that I wasn't really aware of. But how are people in Tokyo feeling about the whole thing? Well, many of them are not happy. These people marching through the streets of Tokyo are not celebrating the coming Olympics, but demanding it be stopped. With COVID infections surging across... Protesters are enraged by reports that the International Olympic Committee is reportedly asking the Japanese government to set aside 30 hospitals and 500 nurses for the Games, despite existing hospital bed shortages. Doctors and nurses are warning across the country that fulfilling that request could mean ordinary Japanese people are left without medical care. And so as a result, several governors have said that they won't make room in their hospitals for athletes. And all of this really seems to reflect the mood across the country. Nearly 80% of people in Japan say this year's Tokyo Olympics should be postponed or cancelled due to the continued rise in COVID-19 cases in the country. Over the last few days, more than 350,000 people have signed a petition to cancel the Olympics. 31 Japanese towns have pulled out of hosting athletes, and even major business figures have said that they're afraid of the Olympics because of the very real risk that it could push Japan into a full-blown COVID crisis. Right, so how are the athletes themselves responding to this? Well, they're also expressing concern. So you may have heard that major sporting stars, for example, in the tennis world, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka and Rafael Nadal, have said that they're tossing up whether or not they'll even attend. And on top of that, the US national track and field team has cancelled its pre-Olympics training in Japan. And you might have even heard that Australia's diving team had to pull out of a qualifying event in Tokyo because of concerns around the virus. So would you say that there's a chance that the Games might be called off? 
Look, yeah, I think there definitely is a chance, but at the moment, the International Olympic Committee and the Japanese government are insisting that the Games will go ahead. And part of that is probably due to the fact that the Olympic Games bring in huge amounts of revenue. So the International Olympic Committee stands to gain at least $5 billion from the broadcasting rights alone. However, there are signs that the committee is worried. So its president, Thomas Bach, was due to visit Japan this week to help with preparations, but cancelled his own trip because of the spike in cases. Mm, That's pretty telling. Yeah, it is. And further complicating matters, really, the decision about whether the games will go ahead could have huge political ramifications for Japan's relatively new prime minister, Yoshihide Suga. He took over the role in September last year after the previous PM, Shinzo Abe, resigned. And for most of last year, Suga was really popular. Opinion polls indicated that 74% of the public supported him, so he was doing really well. But the recent COVID spike and the controversy over the Olympics have pushed that down to just 32%. And that's really worrying for Suga because an election is scheduled for October this year and it's likely that his chances of re-election will come down to how he handles the games. So whether or not we see the Olympics on our TV screens in just two months is riding on a whole lot of factors with huge financial, political and health implications at play. La presidencial, parlamentarias, regionales y municipales con observación y respaldo internacional. Well, Joshua, as you would have just heard, the main opposition leader in Venezuela, Juan Guaido, has unexpectedly come out in favor of renewed negotiations with the Maduro regime. Venezuela has been locked in a political crisis for several years now, following the death of the infamous and charismatic socialist leader Hugo Chavez in 2013 and his replacement by the current regime head, Nicolas Maduro. Maduro has ruled Venezuela with an increasingly authoritarian grip seeking to model his rule on the reforms of Chavez, which notably included leveraging the country's vast oil reserves to support ambitious social welfare spending. Drops in global oil prices have meant that this policy has become increasingly untenable, however, and that's forced Maduro to rely on corruption, organized crime, illegitimate elections, and strong support from the military to stay in power. Maduro has also had to rely on allies in Cuba, Nicaragua, China, and Russia, making Venezuela a clear adversary for the United States, which continues to look very suspiciously on far-left regimes in Latin America. On the other hand, opposition leader Juan Guaido has enjoyed strong support from the West as he attempts to claw back Venezuelan democracy and topple the Maduro government. In early 2019, Guaido even declared himself acting president of Venezuela. Wait, so how does he go from that position to suddenly wanting to enter into negotiations with his opponent, Maduro? Well, since declaring himself acting president, Guaido has been locked in a firm political stalemate with Maduro. Many nations have implemented sanctions on the Maduro regime. It's another step in the Trump administration's bid to oust President Nicolas Maduro. 
The latest sanctions are expected to put more pressure than ever on the Venezuelan government as the U.S. attempts to install Juan Guaido as leader. But with Maduro continuing to enjoy strong support from organized crime, the military, his international backers, and parts of the Venezuelan population, his position still looks pretty secure. And that's had a major impact on Guaido's credibility. Since he hasn't been able to make anything major out of his declaration as acting president, it seems like a lot of Venezuelans and international observers are losing interest in his political movement. In other words, it's all been a bit anticlimactic. Mm, So do you think that's why he's suddenly become open to negotiations? That seems to be the reason. Recently, the Maduro regime has begun negotiating with certain parts of the opposition as a means of dividing up Guaido's support base. To increase his relevance and to unite the opposition again, Guaido was asking for free, fair and internationally supervised elections to take place across the country, as well as for the regime to accept new humanitarian aid, COVID-19 vaccines and to release a set of political prisoners. In return, he's offered sanctions relief, which is really the only tool left of the opposition by virtue of its ties to the US and other Western states. And so how's Maduro reacted to all of this? Well, in a typical televised address, Maduro said he'd agree to allow Guaido to participate in those existing negotiations I just mentioned. But he accused Guaido of essentially just being salty because he'd been excluded from those negotiations up until now. Maintaining his defiant tone, but Nicolas Maduro says he is willing to reopen dialogue with the opposition led by Juan Guaido in talks brokered by mediators. He actually said that Guaido shouldn't, quote, believe that he is the supreme head of a country that does not recognize him. So the key to change might actually lie with the US, which is reconsidering its tough stance on Venezuela after Maduro started making some pretty small concessions on humanitarian aid and political prisoners. My guess is as good as yours, but I'd say the US would need to promise some pretty significant sanctions relief to induce Maduro into entering into the kind of negotiations Guaido is after. Because right now, with the way Maduro's responded, Guaido hasn't received much of a good response, and it looks like that stalemate's going to continue. Well, that brings us to the end of this wrap-up, and the first episode of Season 4 is done and dusted. Get keen for many more wrap-ups to come this season. We're really looking forward to continuing to bring you new and engaging content that covers really important international events. Yeah, stay tuned for next week's in-depth episode. Emma will be chatting with Stephen Walt and Annette McClintock about the way that climate change is fueling conflict between countries. In the meantime, follow us, the Young Diplomat Society, on Facebook and Instagram for more great analysis and content. We will see you in a fortnight.